Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to pray the words that John the Baptist had to say. He said, he, I must decrease, he must increase. Lord, we want to make much of you this morning, much of your son and what he does in our lives and what he can still do. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word, keep us attentive and focused upon you this morning. And Lord, give the message that you want to give. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, if you can turn to Isaiah 43, that's where we're going to be reading from. I'm not going to give uh, much of a history lesson like I normally would, but Isaiah 43, you can find verse 14. It's going to be on the screen as well. Just real quickly, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 is kind of the, the prophetic going around telling people what they've been doing wrong, their idolatry, their apathy, their sin that they haven't dealt with. And, and in Isaiah 1, we're hearing how God's saying, look, I'm sick of the sacrifices you bring to the altar because they don't, you're not actually doing it and, and, and continually bringing your sin before me. You're just bringing a sacrifice. So it really doesn't mean much to me. But chapters 40 through 66 are about hope, about comfort that God gives and who, who he'll eventually give us in Jesus. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 14. So this is, Isaiah 40 through 66 is kind of in the future Isaiah. He's talking about how God's going to free them from the Babylonian exile. We talked about that exile when I preached last on Esther. It was a Babylonian exile that became a Persian captivity. But this is Isaiah saying, look, God's going to release us from that. And then more importantly, Isaiah goes on to talk about how he's going to release us spiritually from sin through Jesus. Isaiah 43, 14. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says. Because of you, I will send an army to Babylon and bring all of them as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. This is what the Lord says, who makes a way in the sea and a path through raging water. Who brings out the chariot and horse, the army and the mighty one together. They lie down. They do not rise again. They are extinguished, put out like a wick. God's saying, look, I'm going to bring you out of that Babylonian exile. I'm going to crush your enemies because this is how much I care about you. Verse 18, do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. I think what God's getting at is here is, look, I did all this great things for you. You know, I got you out of Egypt. We had the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, but you don't really care about that anymore. If you look throughout the history of the Old Testament, you look at the book of Judges, it's, it's a continuous cycle of the people believing God, following God, and then they get, they get complacent and they kind of don't care as much anymore. They start caring less. They start worshiping idols. And then eventually God says, okay, if you're going to break the covenant, I'm just going to lift my hands and, and let whatever happens, happens. And then enemies invade and, and then people are getting killed and they say, God, 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 save us. And then he faithfully shows up, raises a judge up, saves, saves them, and then they get complacent again. And then before you know it, the cycle repeats. That's what the whole book is. But God here is saying, don't remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. Specifically this morning, I want to focus on verse 18 and 19. Let me read that again. Do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. 
Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. My question this morning is, did you come here on a Sunday morning, like you do every other Sunday, desiring God to do something new in you? Because the thread throughout the rest of the book Isaiah is God's going to do new things. He's going to do a lot better than free his people from exile. Isaiah 53 talks about, go read that later. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful prophecy of Jesus who is to come. Isaiah 61, the first two verses there are actually the same verses that Jesus reads from a synagogue in Luke 4. He, he goes up and they hand him the Isaiah scroll. He flips to 61 or rolls it down to 61. He reads the first two verses and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, which would have been crazy back then because people were like, hey, you're not allowed to say that you're that guy that Isaiah says. But he says, no, 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 that's me. So I'm asking us this morning, did we come here desiring, believing that God has a lot more to do in our lives? Regardless of how long you've known Jesus, regardless of, of what you've done for Jesus, regardless of the moments you've had with Jesus, do you come here believing he has so much more for you? I don't mean that as a best life now or that you're going to have the most successful version of you or you're going to absolutely get every single desire of your heart because they may not be things Jesus wants for you. But do you come here this morning actually believing that there's a lot more that you should be desiring? So my question was, what is it that we desire? You know, at um, district conference this year, there was a time where we, we prayed about what we were going to pray. And, and, and I'll explain that. We, we got together and the district superintendents and the leadership people were there. And they said, we're going to wait on God to tell us what to pray. Because we want to be so sure that we're even seeking after the right things that we want him to say, hey, pray about this. Which might sound weird, but the book of Psalms is like, hey, pray about this. Hey, sing about this. So we sat there and we, and we waited and eventually God laid a few things on some different people's hearts. And then they stood up and they shared and then we broke into groups based on if we felt that we want to pray about that thing. The group I was in was praying for a new thing. Praying that God would do something new in us, that God would do something new in our churches and throughout the Central District of the Alliance, Ohio and West Virginia. We're, we're, we're yearning for God, saying, God, do something new. Send your spirit to our churches and do something new. Which has just left me ever since then, and, I, and I've, I've been thinking about these verses that we prayed about. And Do we desire something new? Do we believe that God can do so much more in us than he already has? So when I talk about what it is we desire, I think of two things. One, I think of Jesus saying when he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, you know, just two really easy things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Oh, okay, yeah, that's not bad. And love your neighbors yourself. Ooh, yeah, that's tough. And then in Acts 1, 4 through 8, we see another thing that Jesus is talking about. And I think this is what we need to be desiring. And my question is this morning, is this your desire? So in Acts 1... They get to see Jesus, you know, uh, if you don't remember, as, after he was resurrected, he had a little bit of time that he was still among them. And he speaks to them right before he ascends to heaven. Acts 1, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? which has to be a frustrating response for Jesus because there's several times that disciples bring this up, like, hey, are you gonna be that mighty warrior guy who just comes in and destroys Rome? And it's like, how many times do I have to tell you this? That's not happening. He says, no, I'm, I'm gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And they're like, ah, oh, but are you gonna fix Israel? No, I'm not. That's not the point here. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has, said, has set by his own authority, but 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 has actually become the theme verse of our denomination, the Alliance. We call ourselves a Christ-centered Acts 1.8 family, meaning that we believe we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually because that's the only way we're going to go to the ends of the earth and spread the gospel. And I think everything that I'm saying this morning, there's no great exegetical revelation where I took you to like some Hebrew word in Isaiah and you're like, oh, I never thought of that. My mind's blown. Like, I'm just going to revel in my new intelligence all day. Like, that's not the point of today. I've heard before that most of preaching is just reminding us. So when I talk about new things, when I talk about desiring more of Jesus, when I talk about trying to live out the two greatest commandments to a greater extent, it's like, yeah, that's kind of what we always talk about. But I think it's so easy to sit there, and I, and I do this myself, I'm like, yeah, like I've heard that one before, yeah, I got it, I got it, but not really catch what it is we're supposed to be hearing. So anytime that, that I think of this, if I think of a situation where like, oh, I, I heard, but I didn't really understand, I think of a certain story when I was 11 years old. So picture 11-year-old John Bernard, um, it's his brother's birthday, Justin, my older brother, was, was turning 16. And my mom's throwing a little birthday party for him. And this specific birthday party was just going to be like a few friends could come over, hang out, spend the night, eat food, play video games, that, that sort of thing. So she said, hey, do you want to help me get Justin's birthday party ready? And she's like, specifically, you could help me in the kitchen. And I was like, oh. and for me, uh, I've always liked the idea of cooking. That doesn't mean that I've always been successful. I mean, there's, there, there's a few things, but then there's also some failures. But as a little kid, I wasn't even allowed to boil water in the microwave. So, I mean, uh, uh, my parents finally said, like, look, you can do something in the kitchen. We won't yell at you for stepping in. I mean, I don't know, maybe a fear of burning the house down or something. There was one time when I was around that age that I was making a Totino's frozen pizza for my little brother and I, and I thought if I lock the oven that it will cook faster because it'll like seal the air in. I don't know what I was thinking. So I locked the oven, and no one had used this lock in 20 years probably, so it couldn't come undone. And there was like a charred black pizza that I had forgot about, and my parents frantically trying to get the oven open. So after that, it was kind of a, you know, a ban from the kitchen. But this day, it was like, oh, we're extending the olive branch. We're letting you back in. Uh, you're back into the circle of trust here. And my mom said, hey, I just need you to help me uh, make the, you know, we're going to make two birthday cakes so that we have enough for everybody. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And I go in, and my mom's like, and we had a pretty big kitchen at the time, so I'm kind of on one end, and she's on the other. And I'm at the dining room table, and she's got some stuff out. And she's like, hey, I just need you to make everything for the cake. I'm going to chop some of this stuff up. And I was like, okay, sounds easy. And she's like, yeah, it's just, a, you know, a, a few ingredients. Like, you know, it's not like you're making it from scratch. I was like, okay, I got this. So I get my measuring bowl. And I sit it down, and I was like, all right, time to prove myself. I'm an 11-year-old now. I can do this. And it's time to make the cake, and I read the box, and it's like, put the cake mix in. I put the cake mix in. And it says, I think, water, oil, and eggs. So, you know, I'm, I'm measuring out, you know, leaning down to see the meniscus, make sure I'm getting the water just right, pour the water in, and then I, you know, put the eggs in. And my mom, you know, is like, hey, make sure you don't get any shell in the cake. No one wants that. And I'm like, mom, I'm 11 now. I'm not going to get shell in the cake. It's going to be fine. So I crack the eggs. I look, make sure there's no shell. And then I, I put the amount of oil in. And then it's like, okay, uh, what do I do now? So I look at the box, and it says to stir by hand. And I'm like, oh, okay. And um, you, might, you might have an idea where this is going. So I tell my mom, who's chopping stuff, has her back turned to me, and I'm like, hey, mom? She's like, yeah. And they called me Johnny, so, yeah, Johnny. And I was like, hey, um, 
when it says stir by hand, like, what does that mean? And she's like, I don't even think she's looking. I think she's chopping stuff, frantically getting all this stuff ready. And she's like, oh, it, it, it's real easy. It just means, you know, just, just stir it by hand. It, 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 you don't need anything. And I was like, oh, you don't need anything. Hmm. And then it, like, it dawned on me. And I was like, is this how everyone makes cake? Like, my grandma makes carrot cake from scratch. And I'm like, did she just stir it by hand? Like, that can't be, that can't be it. So, like, I'm, I'm looking down at the bowl. I'm looking at my hands. I'm looking down at the bowl. And then I'm like, I don't know if my hands are clean enough. So I tell my mom I'm going to the bathroom. I was like, Mom, I'm going to go to the bathroom. She's like, you're 11. You don't have to give me updates on the bathroom anymore. But I, I, go, I go in the bathroom, and I'm scrubbing up to my elbows, like, with as hot as water as I can take. Like, I'm prepping for surgery. And, like, my hands are blistering, and, and I'm getting into the, around the nails and everything. And I come out like this so that the water can drip down. And I, I'm working my way back in the kitchen with my beet red arms. And then I'm like, and my mom, who's still not really looking towards me, I'm like, Mom, back in the bathroom. She's like, really, Johnny, you don't have to give updates on that anymore. And then I'm there, and I'm looking down at the, the bowl, and it's looking at me, and I'm looking at the bowl, and it's looking at me, and I'm like, is this really what people do? I was like, well, I guess this is what Grandma does all the time. So I plunge my hand in, and, and I just start stirring this cake batter. And at first, I'm like, this is gross. Like, why do people do this? Like, this can't be, like, how people make cake. And eventually, I'm like, this is kind of nice. And I'm just sitting there stirring the batter. I'm like, you know, I don't know, I feel like a little kid playing with, like, Play-Doh or something. And I'm like, this isn't that bad. I get why people like making cake now. My mom turns around and, and a shout, what are you doing? And, and I pull up a batter-soaked hand, batter dripping down. And I said, you said stir by hand. Batter's, like, dripping down from my hand onto the, onto the counter. And I'm saying, you know, in my defense, this is what you said. And she said, that's not what that means. That just means you don't have to bring out like a KitchenAid mixer and, you know, you don't have to use a beater. You can just use a spoon. I was like, why doesn't it say stir by spoon then? Like, uh, 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 why would that not be what it says? So here's a time of honesty and transparency. You can judge the Bernard family, but my hands were so clean that I just kind of got the batter off and we, we dumped it in and we baked. It was a Funfetti cake. You don't waste Funfetti. And my brother and his friends were never the wiser. I, I don't even know if he knows till this day. So uh, we made the cake and it was fine. But I always think of that, of, if I was so sure I understood what that meant. I was like, yeah, I'm rationalizing it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess everyone just scrubs their arms until they like nearly bleed before they make cake. I was like, okay, I get it. And I, I always think of that because I think so often it, we can become accustomed to hearing these things over and over, like saying we need more of Jesus in our lives, but just saying like, I get it, I get it, like I get it, I just got to stir the cake by hand, I don't need anything else. So this morning I wanted to look a little bit at the life of Albert Benjamin Simpson. And he's a guy that we don't talk about a lot, but he died 100 years ago, founded the Christian Missionary Alliance. And one of the reasons we probably don't talk about him a lot is because we don't want it to be like we're worshiping somebody, at least somebody who's not Jesus. So we don't talk about A.B. quite a bit. In fact, we, you probably more often hear of A.W. Tozer, who died in the 60s, who was an alliance pastor and writer. But A.B. was, I think, an important guy, not a perfect guy. This is a guy that had bouts of depression in his life, that had trouble with the kids that he raised because he wasn't always around enough. Uh, this is a guy that had crippling weeks of, of fatigue, but this is a guy who started the denomination that we're sitting in today. I wanted to look a little bit at his life because I think he's someone who desired something new. And I've been reading his biography and I've been studying more about him and, and, and I just can't get past the fact that this guy was not satisfied. Again, not a perfect guy. He had his faults. 
But this is a guy that kept saying, I need more of Jesus in my life. And if I'm gonna do something crazy, like send people to the ends of the earth, then I'm gonna need a lot more of Jesus in my life. So AB is born in like 1860s. That's him as a, like in his early 20s with some beautiful sideburns. And uh, he's, he's a young Canadian pastor in Ontario. And eventually he, um, after eight or nine years, he, uh, well, first of all, he came to Christ at 14, ends up being a pastor right out of seminary. And then after that, he uh, gets a, a very like lucrative pastoral position in Kentucky. So he ends up in Louisville where he, he got $5,000 a year, which might not sound like a lot, but I did the math and it's at least 150000 if not $200,000 a year to be a pastor. Two months off every summer and you're like, wow, this is a... A.B. had a pretty good gig. And it, it, so it, it's because he was such an a, a intelligent man, such a great speaker. So he, he gets this, this great job uh, in Kentucky, and he gets there in 1874, so just less than a decade after the Civil War ends. There's a lot of tensions in Louisville. There's, there's pastors that haven't spoke to each other in years, even though their churches aren't far from each other, because some of them sided with the North and some of them sided with the South in the Civil War. And he's kind of the outsider because he's from Canada. He's kind of the neutral party, so he has to step in. He ends up at the uh, Presbyterian Church. He was a Presbyterian pastor. He ends up at Chestnut Street Presbyterian Church. And he gets there, and this church quickly loves him. The town loves him. The, the, the paper in Louisville would report on his sermons on Monday morning. So I don't know, you know, if, I mean, for me on Monday morning, I'd be checking like fancy football scores, see how I did. And, you know, back then people were like, oh, let's look at the sermon highlights this weekend. And I don't know, I'm sure they did it for more than just AB, and I don't know if that was all the time, but it, there was at least times where that happened. So he's kind of becoming a big deal. He gets asked to uh, be a part of a seminary down there. He's someone who, who, who's asked to speak in different places. And, and it, it, he's kind of growing in a stature of, of being this like, great, wonderful, poetic pastor with these amazing sermons that people want to come and hear. But while he's there, he keeps feeling something digging at him inside. That there could be more to what he's doing. So after about 10 years of being a pastor, he ends up going to a conference, uh, D.L. Moody, who... You may know the name because of Moody Bible College, but this was a conference speaker going around speaking about the deeper life, speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A.B. hears about this. He takes a train to Chicago, and when he gets there, he's all excited. And I don't know if you've ever been to a conference, like a Christian conference before, or if you've been excited to read a certain person's book or, or see a certain speaker, and that's, that's what happens. A.B. gets there, and he's like, I'm going to hear D.L. Moody. This is going to be a big deal. And before Moody starts speaking, someone else stands up and says, man, I came here to hear D.L. Moody, but just a little bit ago, Jesus met me, and that's all I need. A.B. felt so convicted about it, he got on the first train back to Louisville. He goes there, and he waits in his office and just prays and prays and prays that the Holy Spirit would fill him because he viewed himself as someone who didn't just need salvation, but what we call sanctification, which is God working in you to make you the person that he wants you to be. About salvation, sanctification, A.B. said, this, the one is like the building of the house, the other, the owner moving in and making it his own personal residence. So A.B.'s like, man, to be saved is like, okay, Jesus built the house, but to be sanctified, to ask for the Holy Spirit to actually change your life, that's like saying, hey, come in and, and you own the house. You're gonna change things. So he, he, starts, he starts leaning into this, leaning into the filling of the Spirit, knowing that 
the gospel, the good news isn't just a moment where you plead and, and, and maybe you cry at an altar and you ask Jesus to save you, but the good news is also that you can keep coming back to him and be like, if I'm going to actually love God more than anything, if I'm going to love neighbors as myself, then I'm going to need you to do stuff in me because there's just, and none of us loves that much. So he ends up being at this church a little bit longer. He starts doing some evangelistic services, but he ends up getting a real burden for lost people and a real burden uh, to be a missionary. That ends up not working out, but, and he ends up kind of butting into the idea that this church isn't the place that's gonna work for him. They're good people, they're a good church, but they don't have a heart for the lost that he seeks. So he ends up moving to New York. Uh, New York was a bustling, you know, everyone's coming in, Ellis Island and AB's like, if I go there, that's the center of missionary activity. That's where these new uh, missions groups are springing up. So he, he gets hired at 13th Street Presbyterian Church, the last Presbyterian church he'll work at. Now this church is a big deal, even, even bigger than before. This church started in like the 1820s as what's called a free church. Something I didn't know about, maybe you've never heard of, is pew rent. Has anyone ever heard of pew rent? No one. Okay, I didn't know about it either. Back then, you could actually rent a pew in a church. Now, this wasn't necessarily at every church, but you would go to a church and you, you would, uh, you know, you'd see the Laskowski's name on their pew, and you'd go up and you go to sit down, and be like, "Ooh, Jason's going to be mad." And then, and then, and then you go and you're like, "I'll find one that isn't marked." The the idea is that that you would pay so much for so many sittings a year. It worked a little differently at different churches. It's actually hard to find information about how widespread this was, but it, it was decently popular in America. You would pay to rent a pew and you would pay more to usually get a pew that was closer to uh, the, the front. You would take care of the cushions yourself. And, and, and there's, there's records of churches that didn't get rid of this officially until the 1950s. Great. And you would think that you're like, didn't Jesus have stuff to say about like getting the nice seats, you know, and like getting the chairs, sheets in the synagogue? And it's like, yeah, that's probably why people had a problem with it. So A.B., you know, he, he, he goes to this church and it's the same sort of thing. He's beloved, people love listening to him, but he just has this growing desire in his heart to see missions work happen. So he starts going down to the docks at night and he starts ministering to Italian Americans or, you know, or Italian immigrants who just came overseas. And now I feel like, I know growing up in Western PA, if you were 4% Italian, everyone knew about it. You know, like, you know, uh, any shred of a, a Italian DNA and you, you really held on to, that's at least how it was in the town I came from. But, but so it's, it's even hard to imagine that 100 to 20, 30 years ago that this was something that people would look down upon. But any of these European immigrants, you know, they would come in, they wouldn't have much to their name, they wouldn't be set up in America yet, so they'd probably have some pretty ratty clothes, would probably, you know, smell sometimes, and, you know, based on the time period, and, and so people look down upon them. A.B. goes out to the docks nearly every night, and, and he's ministering to these people, he's, he's getting to know them, he's telling them the gospel, and eventually he has a bunch of these fr- uh, immigrants there as friends. So one day he decides, I'm the lead pastor of this church, I should be able to take my friends there. So he takes 100 Italian immigrants to his church, goes in thinking, you know, what would the problem be? And the elders and the other leadership come up to him and say, you know what, you should find a place where they'd be more at home. Because in our pew rent church where people pay for their seats and pay to sit where they want and we're a pretty well-to-do church, we're a pretty wealthy church, we don't really have a spot for them. And we want them to hear the gospel, but there's probably going to be a place where it'd be better for them. And this isn't like 600 years ago. This is a little over, you know, 100 
So he, he feels dismayed. He, he ends up, uh, you know, uh, helping them get involved into another church. And this starts a rift between him and that church. In fact, he'll eventually leave this church. A couple of his quotes. One is he says, the Christian is not obedient unless he is doing all in his power to send the gospel to the heathen world. He was convinced that unless they're doing everything they can to get the gospel outside of the building, that we're not doing what we should. In fact, when he left the church, he wrote this. For two years, I spent a happy ministry with this noble people, but found after a thorough and honest trial that it would be difficult for them to adjust themselves to the radical and aggressive measures to which God was leading me. What they wanted was a conventional parish or church for respectable Christians. What their young pastor wanted was a multitude of publicans, those are like pub owners, and sinners. Therefore, after two years of most congenial and cordial fellowship with these dear people, and without a strain of any kind, I frankly told them that God was calling me to a different work. So he's saying, look, you want to be a nice church. You want to be nice people. But if I can't bring these people in, and if we can't ever leave this building to go do anything, he's like, I can't be here. So just after two years, he leaves this church. Uh, Right before he leaves, he ends up having an amazing healing experience. He was 37. He had been frail most of his life and would work himself in exhaustion, have to take a month off at a time. He, he, uh, he finds himself at Old Orchard, Maine. This uh, was a picture of a later year because they started doing conventions there. But he was, he was in the forest one time praying for a long time and, and, and God healed him to the point that when you read his biography, that the amount that he did after 37 through into his late 70s is incredible. In 1887, he creates two alliances, the Christian alliance. One is the have a deeper life with Jesus, then he creates the Evangelical Missionary Alliance, which was about missions. Eventually, 10 years later, those fuse into the alliance. So I talk about all this, not because I'm like, hey, there's a test next week and you better buckle up. But I talk about this because what's amazing to me is that AB didn't even mean to make a denomination. It's not what he, we weren't a denomination until the 70s, 1970s. He made this because he was in churches and he kept coming up with, uh, against the idea that I don't know that people desire this. I don't know that people desire to know more of God, to be filled with his spirit and to send the gospel out into the world. He's in these churches. And he's like, these are nice people. These are good people. He's like, I think, I think a lot of them are even saved and love Jesus, but that's it. They're not going any further. He's like, I can't take that. Especially after that healing at 37, he starts working at an incredible pace. He makes the first illustrated uh, missionary magazine in the world. He keeps uh, sending missionaries out, and it wasn't instantly successful. The first place in Congo, almost all of them died in malaria, and they had to keep sending people out. But eventually, to the point now where you have almost 2,000 churches in America and almost 20,000 across the world, all because one guy said, this isn't enough. All because one guy said, we need more. So that leads us back to us. Not so that we can be like, oh, great. I have to go be A.B. Simpson now. And, you know. In fact, A.B. Simpson said, with many of us, God is not finding fault for actual disobedience, perhaps, but for shortcoming and a too easy content with past attainments. The great question is, are we obedient to the voice of his spirit as he calls onward, step by step? There's something I've heard of numerous times over the years. Uh, It's usually three or four words that begin with M, uh, the life cycle of a church. I think if you listen to this, excuse me, I think you'll see that it's very true, not only in churches, but maybe in your life as well. First stage of a church or, or, or of some group as a movement 
which can be defined as a healthy church is born out of a burst of positive gospel energy. It's a Pentecost-like explosion of joy, a vital gospel movement. Such a church has a sense of mission, even a sense of destiny. It's exciting to be in this church. Think of a steep upward trajectory. So churches start, movements start like the Alliance. It's this big, exciting thing. Everyone knows what they want to do. Everyone knows how to get involved. There's a sense of destiny. There's not just a sense of showing up every week. There's not just a sense of keeping status quo. There's not just a sense of we have to do this. We have to have this meeting because we have to, and that's what we got to do. But there's a sense of, no, we're doing this meeting. I'm putting this time in at, at this program. I'm working with these kids. I'm working with these teens. I'm praying with this person because we have a mission to accomplish. Then it becomes a monument. Given human weakness, after time, this movement becomes a monument. The spirit of the church changes from hunger to self-satisfaction. From eagerness to routine, from daring new steps of faith to maintaining the status quo. From outward to ingrown. It's easy not to notice this shift. The self-image of the church might still be that of a vital moment, of a vital movement, but deep within, everything has changed. Think of leveling off. This probably happens in our lives outside the church, in relationships, in marriages, in friendships, where things are exciting and eventually not. Then we become, if you're not careful, a mausoleum. If the trend towards mediocrity is not arrested, the church will decline and become a mausoleum, a place of death. The church as an institution may have enough social momentum and financial resources to keep churning on, but as a force of newness of life, it no longer counts. Think of steep decline, indeed a death spiral. And when I read this, I'm like, I don't want that. But just showing up, just doing what we do because we're nice people in a nice church will only lead to this. As the Alliance and as Antioch Alliance Church and as any church that seeks after Jesus, we lose our forward missional movement when we lose the pursuit of a deep, spirit-filled life in Jesus. See, what made the Alliance special early on, and the Alliance isn't the only movement of God that's ever talked about missions. It's not the only movement of God that's ever talked about a deeper life. But there were two sides of one coin that said, if you care about missions, you're going to have to care a lot more about Jesus. And if you care a lot more about Jesus, you should care a lot more about missions. It was a group of people that got together and said, I desire so much more than this. It can't just be being a good people and being a nice people. This can't be it. There has to be so much more. Back in 1996 at the Alliance Council, I didn't have time to show the video, but in 1996, the U.S. Alliance Council is when all the pastors and missionaries get together. The president of the Alliance at the time got up and gave a really somber call, and he said, listen, we've only been in nomination for over, a little 20, over 20 years. In that time, in 20 years, our giving to the Great Commission Fund, which puts missionaries on the ground, has dropped from 30% per church on average to 10%, or just above 10%. And he said, 10% is the magical number for me. That's, that's a tithe. He said, if we go below that, I'll come back to the next council and I will say that we're removing a missionary from our name. We'll just be the Christian Alliance. He said, how dare we call ourselves Christian and Missionary Alliance if we come back and we're like, we can't even give 10% to missions. He said, how awful to think, I mean, within the same century that, that AB died, that all these people that went to Congo and died of malaria, all these people that died overseas, in the same century, to have to get up in a group of people and say, man, we can barely give 10% to missions which we were founded for 
100, not even 100 years ago. So for us as a church, the question, and I don't have some great 10-step plan that I'm gonna roll out and where I say, this is how we do it. This is how we never become a mausoleum. All I have is the two sides of the one coin to say we need to care a lot more about God. We need to trust that the good news isn't just that God saved you, isn't that just Jesus is your sanctifier, but he can be your, I'm sorry, your savior, but he can be your sanctifier. Trusting that, man, if you're hearing these stories, and you're like, I don't know how I can even do more than I do now. I don't have me figured out. I don't have my family figured out. How am I gonna expend more energy? I'm not saying you buckle down and, and you white knuckle your way through it. I'm saying we come to God asking for vision. I think too often, especially in American church, we, we view it as pastors and elders and whoever else create a vision and then they'll just drag us along. I don't have it on the slides, but Ephesians 4, 11 says, and he, him, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So Jesus gave us apostles, he gave us evangelists, he gave us pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. My job biblically is not to drag us into something. Brian's job biblically is not to drag us into a new direction. It's to equip you to be the body of Christ that will be filled with the Holy Spirit, that will see the gospel extended to our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's my job. And that's a humbling job. That's a job that leads me before God saying, God, I'm going to need a lot more of you if I'm going to equip other people. So this morning, I'm left thinking, do we actually desire this? Because this all sounds nice to talk about, and it's like, I get it, the Alliance, we're going to talk about missions a bit more and other people. But do we really look at ourselves and say, I desire more? God said in Isaiah 43, he was talking to him, he said, you, do you even perceive it? Do you even understand what I'm doing? Because look, until the day that we're actually face-to-face -face with Jesus, where no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain exists as we read about in Revelation, until that day, there's so much more of Jesus that you can have now. The way I've always viewed it is you jump in the pool and you're in, you're all in, but you can keep swimming deeper till the day you're with him. So we're gonna go into another time of worship. And I ask that, we're going to take a quiet moment before we sing. The band can come up. But we're going to, when they come up, we're going to take a quiet moment in prayer. And I just ask my challenge to you this morning is to be honest with yourself and honest before God. And it's okay to say, I don't desire that. Or I can't imagine doing more now. Or I don't even know what it would mean to do more. Or what vision is it that we're supposed to do? Well, if it's my role to equip you, then it's not my role to discern everything. That's for us to do together. And the only way that's going to happen is if we literally fall before God and say, I need a lot more of you in my life. I trust that as you come up here, um, I'm going to say that you, the altar will be open if you'd like to come. If there's things in your life that need dealt with that you need to give to God, I know I've had to find myself recently falling before God, saying, God, man, there's, there's still sin in my life, past and present, that I have shame over that I need you to deal with. Sinful thoughts and actions and, in, and inactions that I need you to cleanse me of. Because if I'm going to equip people 
if I'm going to love neighbors myself, if I'm going to love you above all else, then I need you to do so much more in me. My challenge is that if you feel led, come up and pray before God about that, for the filling of the Spirit. That even if you've never prayed for, pray for it, and if you have, you need it continually. And here's my other challenge with that. If you see someone come up, when people come up for an altar call that's about salvation, I think we're, we have one response, and that's usually joy. It's clapping, it's cheering, it's, they got saved. But I'm afraid that when we talk about sin, when we talk about needing the Holy Spirit more, when we talk about needing God more, I'm afraid that when people come up, we have a different thought. We think, why are they going up? What sinful thing could they be dealing with that they're going up? I'll be honest, I've had this before, like, oh, they're going up. I thought, you know, I thought they got it all figured out. So if you see someone going up and you don't feel led, that's okay. But don't worry about them. Take a moment in your seat and pray. Right, and we, we, have, a, we have a few songs uh, to finish with. So uh, we're going to take an extended time in worship. And please take this time, come up the altar, feel led, and say, and God, I don't even have that desire. I need you to stir it up in me. Or, yeah, I got some sin in, in me that needs dealt with if I'm ever going to move deeper into service of you. Let's pray.